Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at openhousecommunity.com.au. I'm so honoured to kick our Open House year off with what I know will be a highlight of the entire year. In 2005, Time magazine listed Rick Warren among the 100 most influential people in the world. Now he's among the top 20 most influential individuals on Twitter, three quarters of a million followers. He pastors America's biggest church, Saddleback, and a decade ago wrote The Purpose Driven Life, which has now sold 32 million copies in 50 languages around the world. To mark the 10th anniversary of the book, it's been retooled and re-released with two significant new chapters. For all the notoriety, all the achievements, Rick Warren humbly, sincerely applies one of the key themes of The Purpose Driven Life to himself many times a day. That, it's not about him. Rick Warren, welcome to Open House. Thank you so much, Lee. It's good to be with you. It's great privilege to speak with you. Thanks very much, Rick. Rick, to write a book like this in the first place, it assumes there's something missing in the world and in particular the Christian community. What would you say that was before The Purpose Driven Life? Lee, I think that there are three fundamental questions of life that everybody has to deal with, regardless of our age or our race or even our faith. The first is the question of, existence. Why am I alive? And the second is the question of intention. Does my life have a purpose? And the third is the question of significance. Does my life matter? These are so universal that I thought, I need to study what God has to say about them. And the book actually took me about 20 years to write because I was thinking through this for nearly 20 years. And then when I actually started writing, it took me seven months to, to write it all down. Those are universal questions that everybody has to deal with. Yes. As I said, the story of this book is a phenomenal one, measured even just in numbers, and no doubt way beyond that in the lives of so many people. As the impact of it became evident in those early days just after its release, what was your response to that? You know, my first response to the success of the book was, why me? Because I'm not even a professional writer. I'm simply a pastor. The biggest surprise is that I got to write the book. I later came to believe that God allowed me to write the book because he knew what I would do as a result of it. We used all of the money that the book brought in, all of the income, to start an international program called the Peace Plan, P-E-A-C-E, which stands for Plant Churches That Promote Reconciliation. E is Equip Servant Leaders. A is Assist the Poor. C is Care for the Sick and E is educate the next generation. These are five things that Jesus did in his ministry, and they attacked five what we call global giants, giant problems in the world. I'm happy to say that the peace plan is now being done in literally all 196 nations of the world. And so the book ended up funding a major ministry around the world that has blessed even more people probably than even the book. It's a wonderful story. How much were you surprised by the impact, the reach even just, as I said, the sheer numbers sold of The Purpose Driven Life. You know, when I was writing the book, my standard day was this. I would get up at about 4.30 in the morning, and I wouldn't uh, shave or shower or eat. And I would go to a little study and arrive there about 5 o'clock, and I would sit down and I would just start typing. And I would type till about noon on a computer, 
And then I would feel a little uh, antsy. My ADD would kick in, and I'd think, I've got I've to get with some people. And uh, I really, it, that's the way it was. And, and so I, uh, one of my staff would come up, and I'd eat lunch with them. I'd walk around a little bit, uh, shower and shave, go back to writing at 1 o'clock, and type till about 5, then go home, eat dinner, play with the kids, and get in bed by about 8 o'clock. I did that for seven months. And during that time, Many times as I was writing the book, I never knew that the, the book was going to be a bestseller. But I did know that the book was anointed. Because many times as I was writing it, uh, tears would, excuse me, tears would be flowing down my face as I was writing the book. And I, I would be reading what I was writing and I was thinking, I'm not this good. I don't think this way. I knew that I was being guided, that I was being led by the Spirit to write it. And uh, many times I would write something, I'd think, I need this. This is this is for me. I need to, this is what I need to hear. I had many holy moments over those seven months writing that I was actually being guided. I'm not at all surprised. So now to mark 10 years of a purpose-driven life, there's this retooled, released version. With the addition of yeah. two chapters, Rick, the Envy Trap and the People Pleaser Trap, what have you learnt or heard since writing the book? What have you experienced that you thought, I have to address these two traps, the envy trap, the people pleaser trap? You know, Lee, in America, they've done some surveys and they found out, of the Gallup poll and another poll, Baylor poll, found out that about 20% of America had read the book. That's about 60 million people. Yeah. When you have that many people read a book, you're going to get literally thousands, tens of thousands of letters. I don't exaggerate in saying that maybe we received over the last 10 years a half a million emails, letters, notes, and I sure haven't read all of those, but I read a lot, and many readers would read them for me, and I began to sympathize with the problems that people were having as I read these stories, and when I decided to, to expand the book and add in other features, I thought, I've got to come back and do two more chapters, at least on what I consider to be now the, the two biggest barriers to fulfilling your life's purpose. And uh, as you mentioned, they are envy and people-pleasing. I define envy as, I must be like you to be happy, hmm. and people-pleasing is, I must be liked by you to be happy. These are two barriers that if you worry about what other people think, you're never going to fulfill God's purpose for your life. I talked to many people who said, I know what God wants me to do, or I know what I'm called to do, I know what my purpose is, but I'm afraid my husband or my wife or my boyfriend or my parents wouldn't approve. And if we fear the disapproval of other people, it can keep us from fulfilling our purpose in life in a major way. And then envy is the other barrier, that when I'm trying to be like other people, I can't be who God made me to be. If I listen to all the advertisements that are on the television and radio, and I think, I've got to look like her, and I've got to have as much money as he does, and I've got to do what she does, and if I try to be somebody else, then I can't be the unique person that God made me to be. So I saw these two as the two most common barriers. I have to be like you, and I have to be liked by you in order to be happy. Both of them are lies, both of them are myths, and both of them will keep us from uh, living a life of purpose. Without giving too much away about what you say the answers to those are, because I think those two chapters in particular are well worth deeply reading, what's your overarching solution or way forward from those two traps, envy and people-pleasing? It goes back in the first chapter, you know, the first sentence is, it's not about you, 
And the title of the chapter is, It's All About God. And if I focus on God, then I'm going to live for what I call an audience of one. And I'm not worried about what other people think. I know that if I please God, it doesn't matter whether I please anybody else. And if I please God, it will always be the right thing. It simplifies life when you say, I'm not going to live for a bunch of people. I'm going to live for one approval, and that is the approval of God. So that one day when I stand before him, he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. You made the most of your life. Rick, of all the responses that you mentioned to the book, could I get you to recount one in particular for us, that of a hostage situation in 2005? Yes. Take us through what happened there. Yes. In Atlanta, there was a a criminal named Brian Nichols who was uh, taken to court to be sentenced. While he was in court, this uh, criminal grabbed the gun of the guard who was guarding the judge in this courtroom and shot and killed four people and escaped. There began to be a massive manhunt across the city of Atlanta to find Brian Nichols, and he was being searched for for an entire weekend. One night, he broke into a house and took a young woman named Ashley Smith uh, hostage, tied her up, and put her in the bathtub. Ashley Smith was, at that time, a drug addict trying to break a habit, but she had been going to a church, and she had been given the book Purpose Driven Life, and as she was reading it, it was changing her life. And as she was reading it, when Brian Nichols tied her up, they began to talk one time about a conversation, and she said, well, you know, God has a purpose for your life. She said, I've been reading about this. And he said, really? And they began to talk about it. And she said, can I read this to you? And so she read The Purpose Driven Life to this uh, man who was her captor, she was a hostage of. She convinced him to set her free and turn himself in to the police because he read the book. It's a simply stunning story of many I'm sure you've heard. I'm so honoured to say that on Open House we're speaking with Rick Warren, the author of the retooled and re-released version of A Purpose Driven Life. Rick, can I also take you back much further to one other particular moment in your life, way back when you were a 19-year-old Bible student, and you and a friend of yours drive about 500 kilometres to hear one particular speaker. Yes, I was in college. I was going to a Baptist college, and that day, Dr. W.A. Criswell, who was the pastor for 50 years of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, uh, was speaking in uh, Northern California, about 300 miles away. I had always been uh, amazed by this man who spent 50 years in one church. It was the largest church in America at that time, and Dr. Criswell was the most respected pastor uh, in America at that time. And my friend and I cut school from college, and we played hooky, and we drove to Northern California about 350 miles to hear this man of God preach. And while I was there, I heard him tell the story of how he had made a commitment to spend his entire life pastoring one church. And so I made that same commitment that day. I said, Lord, give me the privilege of spending my entire life in one church. And I made that commitment that day. Then what happened was... After the service was over, I went up to meet him, just to shake hands with this spiritual giant. And as I walked up to him, he looked at me with very kind eyes, and he said, Young man, I feel led to pray for you. So I said, Well, great. And so he put his hands on my head, 
and began to pray, and he said, Lord, I ask you to bless this young man, and may his church grow to twice the size of Dallas. Now, tears were falling down my eyes at this point, and when I walked away, I said to my friend, did he say what I thought he said? And my friend Danny confirmed it. Little did I know that that actually would be like a prophecy. It would actually come true, because today Saddleback is more than twice that size. There are actually about 100,000 names on our roll of attenders. We have about 20,000 people who come to service every weekend. We have about 6,000 small groups that meet in Bible study, and about 32,000 people in those Bible studies. We're the only church in America, Lee, that has more people in Bible study in small groups than has on the weekend. 20,000 on the weekends, but 32,000 in small group Bible studies during the week. And yet, like so many big things, great things, it under God had humble beginnings. Can you paint us a picture of what it was like in those very early days? When I began to pray about finishing up a seminary, I was going to school, and I said, Lord, I'll go anywhere in the world if you'll give me the privilege of spending my entire life in one location. I don't care where you go. We got out a map of the world, and my wife and I began to pray about being a missionary somewhere in the world. And actually, we were feeling called to move to China as missionaries. And we really had our hearts set on that. But this was in 1979. And in the 1970s, China was going through then the communist cultural revolution, and the doors were closed to a missionary work. There was no way they were going to let an American come in and do missionary work to China. And so we were told, no, we can't come. And that was the biggest disappointment in our lives. Because I didn't understand at the time why, when I was willing to go, why God wouldn't allow us to go. I later learned, that God said, I'm going to make your church, you won't get to be a missionary, but I'm going to make your church a missionary sending church. The members will go out. And you know, Lee, that's exactly what has happened. When we started this peace plan 10 years ago, we were reading where the scripture says, go and make disciples of every nation. And I challenged our people, I said, I wonder if any local church has ever gone to every nation. In 2,000 years of Christian history, has there ever been one church that actually went to every nation? So I said, why don't we set that as our goal? By the end of 2010, we will be the first church to have sent our members on mission to every nation in the world. Well, I didn't know how many nations there were, so I had to look it up. There are 196 nations in the world. There are 194 that are part of United Nations. The only two nations in the world not a part of the United Nations are Kosovo and Taiwan. But we said, we're going to do that, and we did. Over the next 10 years, we sent out 14,869 of my members, Saddleback members, to go plant churches, equip leaders, assist the poor, care for the sick, educate the next generation in every nation. And on November 18, 2010, we went to Nation 196, the last nation, little island in the Caribbean called St. Kitts, only 35,000 people. And now, for our next decade, we're going after what we call the unreached tribes. There are 3,600 unengaged tribes, which have no church, no Bible, no Christian, and they're very small tribes, and we want to help raise up churches from around the world to make sure that by the end of this decade, there's a Bible and there's a church in every one of those tribes. Can I ask you this question? To what would you attribute both the phenomenal growth 
in Saddleback and that kind of mission. What's going on here with that? I think we intentionally built a process from the very beginning that would move people to deeper and deeper discipleship. Most churches, they believe in discipleship, but they don't have a plan. They don't have a plan that moves people from immaturity to maturity, an intentional, systematic plan. I wrote another book about this plan called The Purpose-Driven Church, moving people from come and see to come and die. The first words of Jesus to his disciples were said when he saw and met his first disciples, when John the Baptist told Andrew and John, there goes the Lamb of God, follow him. They asked him the first question, where are you going, Lord? And the very first words of Jesus' public ministry was, come and see. Now that's where we begin our ministry. We tell unbelievers, come and see. There's no commitment required. That's as low a commitment as you say, just check us out. You don't have to say anything, sign anything, sacrifice anything, serve anything. Jesus starts where people are with a very low commitment, come and see. But then over the next three and a half years, he continues to move them to deeper and deeper levels of discipleship to where he moves them to what we call come and die. And over the next three and a half years, Jesus begins to say 14 times, you're my disciple if you continue in my word. You're my disciple if you love one another. You're my disciple if you bear fruit. And at one point he says, you're my disciple if you take up your cross, deny yourself and follow me. To take up your cross, man, are you willing to come and die? And so we've had this process we call a purpose-driven process to help move people from membership to maturity to ministry to mission, or we move them from knowing and loving God to loving his family to growing in God to serving God to sharing God. And that's the process we've used, and we've moved thousands of people through this, so we move them from new believer to maturity to minister to missionary give you an example. In the last 10 years, I've baptized 22,000 new believers. That's bringing them in the front door. But then we move them into small groups where they grow for maturity. Then we move them into ministry where we have about 20,000 people involved in lay ministries. And then we send them out on mission, which we call the commissioned, uh, to go all around the world. And as all that under God has happened around you, Can I ask you this? How have you kept your head through this all? It is by constantly repeating the first sentence of the book. When I wrote that first sentence, it's not about you, I honestly didn't know, Lee, how many times my own life would be tested by that verse. Hmm. And now, since that book came out 10 years ago, I find myself having to say that to myself quietly as a prayer, sometimes five or 10 times a day. And so when I'm criticized, I say, it's not about you. And when I'm praised, I say, it's not about you. And when things get tough and slow down, and we have the inevitable difficulties and delays and dead ends, I say, it's not about you. And when we have defeats, I say, it's not about you. And when we have victories, I say, it's not about you. It's all about God. And I didn't know that I was going to be tested on that verse every day for the rest of my life. But that's the key, is to walk humbly before the Lord in dependence, where humility is not denying your strengths. Humility is being honest about your weaknesses. And the more honest you are about your weaknesses, the more authentic you are, the more humble you are, the more God's grace you get, and the more God's grace you get, the more power you have. I ask you this perhaps unusual question, 
but it's a big issue in our world today, especially in ministry. How important are your days off breaks for you from your work and ministry? It's very important if you want to last. Ministry is a marathon, not a 50-meter dash. It is a marathon. You have to pace yourself. If you study the ministry of Jesus, seven times in his ministry, he pulls back for times of retreat. Seven times he pulls back for times of rest. He would go out and he'd have a campaign of strong ministry, and he'd pull back for prayer and relaxation. And then he'd go out again and he'd pull back seven different times. Now, the Bible says in the Ten Commandments, six days you labor, and on the seventh day you rest. If you're not taking a day off every week, you're breaking the Ten Commandments. It's not just an optional idea. If you don't take a day off every week, you are violating the Ten Commandments. And the Bible says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So God considered rest and recreation so important. He put it in the Big Ten right there with don't murder, don't commit adultery. He says every six days you take a day off. That's how important rest is. My final question is this. Back in 2005, Time magazine judged you to be among the top 100 most influential people in the world. How do you desire, Rick Warren, to use that influence? When I began to get more notoriety because of the book, I had to begin to pray about what I call the stewardship of affluence and the stewardship of influence. The easier part to do was to deal with the money. We just gave it all away. My wife and I are reverse tithers, which means we actually give away 91% of our income and we live on 9%. Now, we didn't start there. 37 years ago, we started giving 10% away, and each year would raise it by at least 1%. And now, after 37 years of marriage, we give away 91% of our income and live on 9%. So that was the easy part, the stewardship of affluence. The hard part was the stewardship of influence. I don't think God gives you influence or power just so you can be famous or just so you can be prideful or arrogant or things like that. In Psalm 72, which is Solomon's prayer for influence, the Bible teaches us that the purpose of influence is to speak up for those who have no influence. And so I committed to use whatever affluence and whatever influence God had given me to help people who have no influence, and uh, that's how I have used that, to manage it. It's not for our benefit. It's not about you. It's to be used for people who have no influence. So we speak up. We have ministries to orphans because they have no influence. We have ministries to the sick because they have very little influence. We have ministries to the poor because they have very little influence. So if you follow a ministry of Jesus, you will use your influence to help those who don't have it. Rick Warren, as I said, I'm honored that you've joined us on Open House. Thank you so much indeed for your time. Lee, it's good to talk with you, and I hope to come back to Australia very soon. I love that country from the bottom of my heart. (laughs) Australia will be very glad to see you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this Open House podcast. Thanks to Christian Super and Real World Technology Solutions. To hear more from Open House, visit openhousecommunity.com.au.